the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Washington, D.C. besieged by the Holy Roman Empire and the only hope for salvation, talking beavers. Carnivorous butterflies and pencil lead set to transform human existence. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. This time we talk with PC Hodgel about the Gates of Tagmouth. This is her new entry in the Kinserath saga. The series is a wonderfully strange high fantasy. The setting um, is just super cool, and it features heroine um, Jame, J-A-M-E, Talisman, who's a chaotic and cunning woman who uh, just might be able to save the world from an evil fate. Pat Hodgel talks about that and more from her ancient family manse in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where she lives, which is the true thing she does. But I just wanted to say ancient family manse there, and Oshkosh also. And of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of the Leaden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news. We have new free fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com website. For fiction, we have a story by me, Tony Daniel. Can you tell us about that, Christopher? Yeah, sure. As you well know, Tony, this is a tie-in story from your book, The Amber Arrow, which is a sequel to last year's series debut, The Dragon Hammer, and the story is called The Powhatan. In it, Roman legionnaires from the Holy Roman Empire have been laying siege to the native cities along the Potomac. With supplies running low, something must be done. Juanus Kittimaquand has won many a foot race in his seventeen years. Now he and a cohort of young warriors must run the race of a lifetime. The finish line, the Mark of Shenandoah, where Juanus will ask Lord Wolfgang von Dunstig for help in lifting the siege of his beloved city. But this will be no simple competition. If they lose, it will mean death, or worse, for their people. And to complement that merriment, we have a most excellent non-fiction piece from space scientist Les Johnson and his evil chemistry assistant, Dr. Joseph Meany. Well, maybe Joe isn't that evil, but he does know an awful lot about the nasty uses of nanotech. Anyway, the article is on a new wonder material that's out there revolutionizing stuff. Perhaps a lot of people aren't quite aware of the revolution yet. Les and Joe will change that for you. The article is graphene, not just another miracle material. Aluminum, plastics, liquid crystals, all materials that once seemed like something out of a science fiction novel, and they're now part of our everyday lives. These substances have changed the way we live and work. Now, a new material is poised to change the world, yet again. Graphene, not just another miracle material, which is a wonderful article. I'm really proud that we're putting this out by Les Johnson and Joseph Meany. And the Powhatan by Tony Daniel are now available to read for free at Bain.com. They are also in our most excellent ebook collections, downloadable for free at Bain eBooks. Free Nonfiction 2017 is the name of one, and Free Stories 2017 is the name of the other. So get them online, get the ebook, do what you have to to check these out. I want to welcome PC Hodgel to the podcast. Hello, Pat. Hello. PC Hodgel, Pat, is the author of the Kinserath um, series of high fantasy novels. Pat is the daughter of two well regarded artists and has also a rich scholarly background herself. She earned her doctorate at the University of Minnesota with a dissertation on Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe and is a graduate of Clarion and Milford. Um, she's a retired lecturer at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where she taught modern British lit and composition. Pat lives in her family's ancestral 19th century wood framed house in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is, sounds really cool. Um, and uh, actually, you have a blog where you can see some of, uh, and you also are quite the knitter, as I recall. Is that true, Pat? Yes, I have something like 4,000 different kinds of yarn. Good Lord of mercy. 
So, and you show some of it on your. Uh, what what is the blog address, by the way? Just while we're talking about it. Uh, it's Live Journal. Um, the name I use there is Tagmuth. Okay, so it's Tagmuth on uh, on Live Journal. All right, T-A-G-M-E-F-T, like the uh, title of the book. Anyway, there's some cool stuff there. Pat's Kinsrath series and its prequels have been, have been developing over 30 years or so. You, you're one of those writers who writes in a world and develops uh, it so very deeply. Uh, they began with the novels Godstalk and Dark of the Moon, which are collected in the Bain Omnibus edition, the Godstalker Chronicles, and continued in Seeker's Math to write a Rathorn, or is it a... A wild Rathorn, or is it just to ride a Rathorn? Ride a Rathorn. Just to ride a Rathorn. Seeker's Bane, Bound in Blood, Honor's Paradox, The Sea of Time, and now, I, not the Sea of Time, but Sea of Time, I think it is. And now the latest entry in the series, uh, The Gates of Tagmouth. The novels have many wonderful characters. Their main focus, though, is on our heroine, uh, Jame Talisman who is a scion of uh, the Kinsir people, who are sort of a, a melding of different sorts of people, even different biological beings. Um, basically, they are people who oppose this um, creature, beast, place, something, state of being, <laughs> who is, um, <laughs> is slowly taking things over named Paramal Darkling. Um, your world is really complex, and it's really cool. Can you give us, I know it's really hard to give an overview of the setting, um, but uh, the world we're on it in the stories is Rathelian, correct? And what's, what, tell us a little bit about this place. Uh, well, Rathelian is a threshold world, which means that it has access to the worlds uh, on either side of it, uh, down the chain of creation, my people have fled there uh, after a catastrophe, and they've been stranded there for something like 3,000 years at this point, to the extent that they've almost forgotten what they're supposed to be doing, or it's become almost like an old story to them. Uh, the world itself is a pretty lively place. Uh, almost any part of it is going to have certain elements of... Um, life and death to it. Things change constantly. Um, there are strange ways of getting from one place to another. It has a rich history of its its own, of gods, some of whom are lingering, some of whom have, uh, have been more or less put aside by this point. Uh, it has its native uh, forces, the four, and considering that Jane belongs to a people who are monotheistic, this all presents a bit of a problem. Uh, she's had to throughout the series. Yeah, the the Kinsir god is she's sort of a avatar of a of a of a trinity, right? Is that? Yes. Can you explain that? That's. I, I'm not even begin to try to uh, to explain that, but um, it, it's a it's a three part god, and and it is represented in members of her family, and sometimes against each other, uh, or at least yes. un, not integrated yet, or something like. That. Please just explain it for me. <laughs> so. Okay, well, the three faces of their god are creation destruction and preservation and they've been waiting for their, their people have been waiting for these aspects to manifest themselves in certain individuals um, waited for a long time uh, at this point there are only three left in the, the High Lord's house uh, there's James, there's her brother Torison, and there's their first cousin Kendry and people are just beginning to come to grips with the fact that these these are the the Tyridon. These are the three aspects of their god. Um, Jane was the first to manifest, and she hasn't really 
come, come to grips with it yet. She's trying desperately not to destroy things whenever she can. Um, they haven't really gone over the top to becoming it yet. It's only at the point where they decide uh, that they accept their roles. They may or may not be ready for it at that point. Uh, they, they are three of them are together in the gates of Tagmouth, uh, but I wouldn't say they're exactly battle ready yet. They're beginning to share each other's dreams, right? And yes. What can you well tell us more about Jane? Um, can you just tell us, uh, give us a brief synopsis of her life so far? Who is this? A uh, woman who we meet at the beginning of uh, the Gates of Tagmouth confronting, talking with her brother Torson. Well, uh, she is, she and Tori are twins. Um, they were born to uh, Gant's High Lord when he went, after he went into exile in the Haunted Lands. And their mother was sent to him out of Paramal Darkling, which is just across the barrier there in the Haunted Lands. Uh, Paramal Darkling and the Master's House are right there. Uh, so she and Tori are twins. Uh, they have been more or less set against each other by their father, who was really against the kind of the Shanir, the, the someone of the old blood with special powers, which was pretty clear Jane had from the very beginning, especially after, at age seven or so, she uh, popped her claws. Turns out she has retractile claws. Um, Tori was not quite that uh, precocious. So she escaped from the keep because, well, she was scared of her father, for one thing, and he tried to kill her. Um, spent some time in the master's house. He was grooming her to become his, his mate, a replacement for her mother, his sister. All gets kind of incestuous. Uh, she escapes from there. She ends up in Anrothelion in the city of Titastagon, which is where the whole series begins. That's Godstock. And ever since then, she has been trying to come to grips with who and what she is. She's also been trying to find a place among with her own people which at first she was separated from the physically, then for the last couple of books she's been trying to integrate herself into that society uh, where highborn women, which is what she is, are generally treated as chattel. Um, they're used for breeding purposes. They, they lost a lot of their influence at the fall. Um, she is in ch instead has to been declared her brother's Air. And as such, she was allowed to go to military school. Uh, Tagmus is the third of the three military novels uh, in which she, instead of spending a third year in the academy, is sent out to establish a keep of her own and show, finally, that she actually can lead people, something that she's not even very sure about herself. Yeah, she did not. Um, yeah, she didn't take well to uh, to becoming a highborn lady, and she she's got a military bent to her, which I guess goes with her her uh, god of the the aspect of destruction of her god that is her her <laughs> that's that's within her. Um, tell us a little bit more about the. The world as well, um, the setting. Uh, Raythons are cool. Um, can you describe one? She rides one. Oh, Rathorns. Rathorns. Yes. Think in terms of an ivory-plated carnivorous unicorn. <laughs> a very bad temper. That—that's the creature that she has become bound to. Um, he's constantly trying to trick her into hurting herself. He can't do it deliberately because they are bound, but um, he has his issues with her. So, uh, it's a very high-spirited animal. Exactly. Uh, it, it reminds me of some horses I've tried to ride. Uh, 
and the um there's just like aspects of the world that are kind of alive and 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 move around like there's uh i believe there's a scene in here where the uh the baker's dough comes to goes rogue or something like this yeah what happens there and how can goes rogue <laughs> how can sourdough go rogue well have you ever tried to bake bread not in uh and you <laughs> Not in the old way. <laughs> Yeast has an ex- extraordinary property to it. Mm-hmm. You put it in, it rises. It rises everything with it. Um, it can, exp- it can well, I won't say explode, but it can overtop the bowl. Uh, it needs to be punched down. It's it's a rampant life form. You have to sort of fight it, huh? Yes, that's called kneading it. <laughs> well, it almost—I guess it just uh, is. It, it almost kills a fellow, and and uh, is it? It's the um, it's the thir- it's the cousin who confronts the. Anyway, we, I guess that that scene is not that important, but it, it was a cool scene that sort of defines the world. And the the butterflies are kind of uh, dangerous in Rathilian as well. As I recall, uh, the jewel jaws. Yes, yeah. um, they tend to be. Con- they are. They are also carnivorous. They tend to be carrion eaters. So anytime you see a, a cluster of very pretty butterflies in a field, you probably got something dead there. Uh, so the cancer have retreated uh, over eons, um, and. Is there something, I guess Ganth did not think so, uh, but is there something about this particular moment and this particular world that might finally um, be the moment that they can defeat this this thing that's just been uh, decimating them? Decimating Uh, worlds. Decimating worlds, whole universes actually, coming down the chain of creation. Uh, yes, they're getting to the point of the sort of the end game. Um, as I said, the three faces of God, creation, preservation, destruction, are all beginning to manifest themselves. Uh, at the same time, they, Jamin in particular, has made contact with the native deities, uh, including the, the elemental four, and... Part of the problem, as it will turn out in, in the next book, uh, that her people have run into is that their their temples, which were built before they got to each world, have been sort of cannibalizing the local gods, which in turn means that the previous worlds were not able to defend themselves properly. Things are turned around on Rathilian. For the first time, the local gods are... Potentially allies. Not yeah. quite there yet, but potentially allies. So a lot of things that James has done in networking, as it were, with this world and the people and the things in it are part of what will lead to a final... empowering them for the final confrontation. So where is... All right, so at the beginning of the book, James being gets assigned uh, by Tori to go reestablish Tagmouth. Um, why? What is the, what's the point of this? What's, um, what's the reason that, um, that uh, this needs to be done? Well, it's a test. She spent two years at the military academy, ostensibly in charge of the other cadets of her house there, but she hasn't really done as much as a leader as she should. She's been up in the hills a lot. She's been doing other things that are related to her her impending divinity, as it were. Um, but she hasn't really shown herself yet to be a leader. And in fact, she's not entirely sure that she is one. Um, so the, the the officers there have given her this this trial. Can you go? To a ruined keep, can you reestablish it? Even if you're really separated from all support systems, can you survive there for a year? 
And so the keep itself, when she first gets there, it's simply uh, a place that she has to, to turn into a home. Uh, of course, it turns out that it's also got other aspects, uh, and hence the gate business. Um, but that's how that fits in. Yeah. And the and it's surrounded by um, this uh, very cool sort of gypsy wild people who Jay Marty knows well, the Merikit. Yeah. Um, who are they? Who's the Grand Sid? This is a, a cool part of the novel. Well, all the way back in was it Dark of the Moon, uh, I established that there are clans, uh, tribes living up in the hills, the hill tribes. Uh, the Marrakech are one of them. Um, at first, all we really saw of them were the men having ceremonies in the hills, worshiping the four, which are earth, air, fire, and water, who uh, represent Um, and they usually do it with these elaborate miming rituals. Uh, Then I began to go back to the village and began to see what the women were up to, which actually I found a lot more interesting. Uh, The women tend to be the the owners of the property there. Um, They are the lodge wives. Uh, They also are considered to own their children, and they can, in fact, designate who the father of the child is, regardless of who he is biologically. They simply say, okay, I like you. You're the father of my children. Um, so they have a lot of hmm. in, in g- gender uh, mix and matches going on there. They turned out to be much more complicated than I expected. And how does Jane fit in with them? Because she's she speaks their language, for one thing. After learning it, yes, took quite a took quite a while to get her to that point. Um, she's got involved initially because she was drafted into one of the men's ceremonies, and she was drafted in as the Earthwife's favorite, who is a fertility figure, male fertility figure. Uh, she won that position, and because the chief was so, you know, sort of boggled by this, uh, he decided to declare her an official man. <laughs> so she has male status up in the hills. And um, the uh, the uh, another interesting character is uh, Lyra. Um, What's she, what is she doing there? She's um, becomes important to the story. Can you tell us about her? Uh, Lyra, Lyra Lackwit is a young, uh, high-born girl, woman, girl, really, um, that Jane ran into back in Dark of the Moon, I think it was. Uh, she's pretty scatterbrained, but she is beginning to grow up a little bit more, I think. And Jane, she's a, she's in, in flight from her own house because they want to marry her off to another lord who happens to have extremely bad breath. He's allergic to his own teeth, so his breath stinks, and she really doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Uh, Jane ends up taking her up into the hills to leave her with the Merikit, um, to leave her with, actually, James has a, a husband up there, uh, a young Merikit girl called Prid. So she takes Lyra up to the Merikit village and leaves her with Prid as a house guest. Um, and people are searching for Lyra. People are searching for Lyra. Her, her brothers are looking for her. Her father is looking for her. She's, as I said, the the highborn women tend to be used as, if not chattel, then at least from marriage materials to make to make bonds between different houses. So she's fairly valuable to them in that respect, but not really as an individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, she sort of hero worships James, so she's constantly trying to do some things 
the way she thinks Jane would, which very seldom works out properly, Lyra being Lyra. Uh, I'm still working out how she fits into the the, the latter days here. Mm-hmm. Well, she's uh, she keeps coming into the story. So the the gate and the gates. Um, we don't want to give too much away, but what kind of gates might there be that could exist in James' world, and um, what might James discover at Tagmath or, or know about? Well, let's see. Can I describe this without giving too much away? Um, if the reader has read the earlier books, you, the he, she, it will, will have encountered the step-forward stones, um, which are stones that have such a strong connection to where they came from um, that if you move them and then step on them, they t- the stone takes you to the place where they came from, or at least further along. So they're just sort of displacing uh, effect. And it, it's something I came up with because I realized that I had to get my characters from one place to another about a thousand miles apart mm-hmm. faster than I, I could under normal circumstances. So I came up with the step forward stones. And the gates that they find at Tagmouth, um are related to that. Uh. It's another very cool part of the uh, of the world. Um, what tell us a little bit about James' um, retinue, um, uh, like Briar and some of the others. Um, well, Briar Ironthorn is her second in command. Uh, Briar is a Kendar, which is one of the three races that make up the Kenserath. Um, she's all the Kendar basically are much bigger than Jane is. She, she, the Highborn tend to be much smaller. Uh, Briar is quite imposing. Um, she, she is definitely a leader. She's also very tough, and also she was she she come, came from an a, an arrival household, and where the Lord was a really, really nasty person. Uh, but she managed to break free from him and has become bound to Jane more or less by accident. Um, they're having their own problems throughout Tagmouth in that Briar doesn't know if she should really trust a highborn Jane um, to be loyal to her to uh, do the right thing, because in her experience, highborns don't. Who else? She has uh, Mark, another Kendar, who's actually Briar's grandfather, great-grandfather. I get that kind of confused. Um, And she's been with him ever since the first novel, Godstock. He's uh, an elder. He's late middle age, which in their case is like 90s. Um, He was a warrior. Uh, largely because he's just so big and strong that that's what they wanted him to do, whereas what he wanted to do was be an artisan. Um, and as in his latter days with James' brother and now with James, he's been finally allowed to express himself in artistic ways. So he is building this, this uh, amazing stained glass window, which is a map of the uh, of Rathillion, uh, this is back at her, her brother's keep. Uh, the, the glass of the that particular map is made from materials that come from each particular place in Brazilian, and they're colored by whatever minerals are native to that spot. So it doesn't look like a map. It looks like an abstract painting. But if you look at it, you can tell exactly... You know, not only where things are, but what what is there in terms of mineral deposits and, and uh, organic hmm. materials for the lime and all sorts of things like that. Um, anyone else I should cover? 
Um, the uh, she's her her peop, her men her the the soldiers the force with her are um, she's got to win their trust right that's part of the what she's trying to do in the book yes and yes I mean they she's sort of led them for the last two years but not without a lot of supervision. And to the ten that she had trained with for those two years, they more or less trust her. She, they know that she can usually get them out of fixes, even if she gets them into it in the first place. The others tend to look at her, and if they weren't at the military academy with her, they have more doubts. For a highborn woman to be in her situation is unheard of. In fact, it's unheard of for a highborn woman to even go out without being wearing a mask. Jane doesn't wear a mask. And she's... Oh, she upsets And she's chaotic and um, impulsive, and um, which tends to, because she, she has good impulses, tends to work out well. Yes, she's... Um, well, part of, part of what uh, makes her unique, I suppose, is that she's a catalyst. Things just happen around her. So she lives in a constant state of um, uproar. Um, one of the things I quote over and over again is uh, she was told at one point, uh, we were told that you were here, we expected to find the Riverland reduced to uh, rubble and you sitting in the midst of it looking apologetic, <laughs> which is pretty close to what she does. Yeah. The um, So what's next in the series after... Uh after this, you hinted that we may be, are we reaching a, um, a, a finale moment, or is um, does James still have a ways to go? Uh, a little ways. The one I'm working on right now is a return to Titastagon. Uh, all those years ago, I left so many things up in the air when she escaped from that city, and I really wanted to go back and tie in some loose, loose ends before I proceeded to the final stage. Um, so that's what the book I'm writing at the moment is about. Do we have a title? To for that, that? Uh, yes, Three Nights in Titastagon. <laughs> after the one I'm writing now, I see either one or two books after that, and that should be the end of the story arc. Well, I hope it doesn't end with Paramal Darkling killing everyone <laughs> and devouring their souls. <laughs> but maybe, I guess. That's the danger, right? Well, yes. Uh, but I promise you, the good guys will win. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> if they had to pay a price. Yeah. Uh, the book... Out at the moment is the latest entry in the Kinserath saga, and it is The Gates of Tagmouth by P.C. Hodgel, and it's at booksellers everywhere. Pat, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. 
Traveling with Dutiful Trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 7 Andy Report Master trader Yos Gallen had purchased handmade papers and pens turned from local woods. Patty watched as he was now examining pottery bowls with a crystalline glaze that the attending artisan swore made them virtually unbreakable. What an interesting idea, he said to the square-faced woman. Is this a house, Glaze, or your own innovation? My own, she said with a slight bow. I have always been a great reader. Some years back, I found a monograph regarding crystal knives produced by a certain tribe of beings known in the broader universe as clutch turtles. Their knives were proven to be virtually indestructible and, well... Pottery is a fragile thing, and we suffer in the far trade for it. So, I set myself the task. She picked a bowl up from the display shelf, a winsome work in swirling deep blues, the fluted lip all cream and white. It reminded Patty of a wave racing toward shore. She yearned to hold it and find how the shape fit her hand. The artisan threw the bowl at the tiled floor. Patty cried out in protest and felt her face heat even as the bowl struck the tiles with a bell-like clang and settled entirely unshattered. I am impressed, the master trader said. The artisan bowed and continued the motion, plucking the bowl up and straightening. She looked to Patty, a smile on her face, and glanced at the master trader. It is permitted to give a gift to one who would not see beauty destroyed? It is a handsome gift for an apprentice, he said, his voice perfectly neutral. Patty felt her cheeks warm again. She had displeased him. Well, of course she had. What trader squeaked aloud during the trade? We were all apprentices once, the artisan said. The bowl balanced delicately on the tips of her fingers. I still have the bowl my own master gave me to place by my bed, so that every morning when I opened my eyes, I would see it and recall that I strove to bring beauty and balance into the world. A wise master. I hope that I may be as wise. He bowed slightly. I am honored that my apprentice should receive so apt a gift. The artisan smiled even more fully. Patty bowed to her honor more deeply than father had done. It is a wonderful bowl, she said. I will strive to be worthy of it. Thank you. You are very welcome, the artisan said. The bowl pleases me as well, and it will please me to think of it voyaging in space, supporting an eager apprentice along her path to master. Her bow suggested master to apprentice, though there was something in the hand motion. Perhaps, Patty thought, master to an apprentice not her own. Allow me, please, to wrap this and place it in a sack so that you may carry it more easily on port. The sack had long handles. Patty hitched them over one shoulder and nestled the bowl against her side. The master trader had spent another few minutes with the artisan, arranging for the passage to take samples of her work, and had left a beam code and an info key for the guild master's pleasure. They paused now in the common corridor. 
the master trader, herself, and Vanner Higgs, who made their third. Mr. Higgs's official title was Technician First Class. He was also part of the passage's security detail. Before coming to them, he had been a technical sergeant with a mercenary unit. His primary responsibilities there, too, had to do with technologies and connectivities, though he had, of course, had battle training as well. He had told her, when a previous schedule had placed them on port together, that it was much more peaceful being a tech on the passage because no one was trying to kill him while he was setting up the equipment. He stood now patiently, a little apart from her and the master trader, his eyes alert, not a technician at this moment, but a security person on duty. Well, apprentice, what do you think of the potter's wares? They're very beautiful, Paddy said, recalling the bowls, cups, and art objects on display. Everything in the shop had been pottery, down to the glazed tile floor. But they're handmade. She cannot possibly produce enough to make it profitable for her to trade off-planet. Now there's an interesting question. Did you see the discreet sign above the wrapping desk? Contact the guildmaster for bulk orders? Paddy frowned. She hadn't seen the sign. She had been too interested in the wares. Another failure. A trader sees everything, just as much as a security guard. No, sir, I didn't, she confessed. It was, as I say, discreet. I have asked that the guildmaster be in touch, should our information interest her. I confess that I am agog to hear how they manage bulk orders and what bulk may mean to them. I am interested in those topics as well, she said. I will be certain to keep you informed, he said affably, and looked over her head to give Mr. Higgs a nod. Vanner, we're about to forsake the halls of civilization for the noise and confusion of the fruit and flower market. Are you afraid? Not so much, sir, Mr. Higgs said genially. I've been on Gaston Prime during the Feast of the Founder. That spoilt me, kinda, for fruit markets. I understand. I will, therefore, content myself with a warning concerning the flowers. Always look twice at the flowers, sir. An excellent policy. Master Trader Jos Gallen turned to Paddy. You are now lead trader. I will recuse myself insofar as I may. Does this satisfy? Yes, Master Trader. Splendid. Allow me to carry your parcel. A trader should have her hands and her wits about her when she goes in to negotiate. Yes, she said, slipping the bag off her shoulder and handing it to him. She felt a slight pang as he slipped the handles over his own shoulder, which was ridiculous, of course. Father would certainly take very good care of such a bowl. Thank you, she said, and nodded to Mr. Higgs before setting a brisk pace down the cool hallway, through the door, and out into the day port. Paddy had done her research so she knew where the nearest east-west jitney station was, where to debark, and which slideway would convey them directly to the fruit section of the fruit and flower market. She told over this information to Father and to Mr. Higgs, in case they should become separated, which was wise, for she and Mr. Higgs did lose Father on the slideway, which was very crowded. They stepped off at the fruit market landing, just the two of them. Patty turned just as father exited the slideway. He gave her a nod. What a terrible crush, to be sure. How fortunate that they all seemed to be going someplace else. 
fortunate indeed, she said, drawing a deep breath to calm the flutters in her middle. She felt like she had when she had taken the test to find if she was indeed a pilot of Corval. Well, one knew how to cope with sky nerves after all. She closed her eyes briefly, accessing a quick, calming exercise. Her stomach settled into its usual place, and her hands immediately felt steadier. Opening her eyes, she nodded to Father and to Mr. Higgs and pointed toward the platform stairs. Technically, my laster was not a fruit, but a nut. The kernel of the laster fruit, very little of which escaped the appetites of the population of Andirie. The kernel, however, was not so well regarded, though it was perfectly edible, and indeed the population of Chessel's world regarded it with a passion to rival that of Andirie for the fruit. In terms of trade, the matter could not have fallen out more satisfactorily. The kernel, which was durable and easy to ship, was desired off-world, while the delicate fruits were desired on-world. Patty paused to take her bearings by the corner markers. Her destination was at the intersection of blue flower and green fruit, which was there to her left. She had turned right one row too soon at the top of the grid. There's our corner, she said, turning to Mr. Higgs, who smiled and nodded. She glanced beyond them to where father... Father was gone. No, that was absurd. There was no crush of slideway travelers here in the hall. Merely a few dozens of shoppers, some merchants standing at the entrance to their booths, and a few bot cleaners. Patty spun slowly on her heel, as if seeking the corners one more time for verification. Father was nowhere to be seen. She blinked, feeling a little unsettled in her stomach. It was true that he had said he would recuse himself, but surely he would not have left the group without a word at least to Mr. Higgs, and certainly he would not have violated the order that all crew on port travel in threes, or in the company of a member of the ship's security team. One more breath, one more glance around, the last, lest she attract the attention of a floor monitor, and that would be embarrassing to be delivered to her destination by a monitor, as if she were too green to have studied the map before time. Her glance crossed that of Vanner Higgs. He tipped his head very slightly to the left. Patty looked beyond his shoulder, her eyes snagging at once on the merest shadow, a faint suggestion of silver hair, strong nose, and shoulders outlined by a dark blue shirt sketched upon the warm market air. It would appear that Father had indeed suggested to those surrounding that he simply was not present. While it disturbed her that such a subterfuge, even born of healer talent as it must be, had very nearly fooled her. At the same time, she was grateful that Father had found a way to clear the trade for her. Patty sighed quietly and raised her hand to point again at their corner before moving off in that direction. Well, that had been unexpected. Sean looked down at his own hand, relieved to see that broad, brown member with the carved amethyst of a master of trade sparkling cheerfully, one might say smugly, there. It had given him a bad turn just a moment ago to look down and see nothing, though he could feel the hand perfectly well, and each finger when he wriggled them and the weight of the ring. Granted, he didn't often suggest that he wasn't present, 
But on those occasions when he had, the effect had been more as if those around him had simply forgotten that he was there. If one was determined enough, one could see beyond the suggestion, as he had found one evening to his sorrow when he had been trying to avoid an overzealous suitor. In no case had he ever forgotten he was present, nor had he ever vanished before his very eyes. Happily, he had been able to bring himself back from total absence to what seemed to be a shadow of himself by concentrating on what he should be seeing. It was as if he had applied too much force to the original suggestion and gone one step deeper into actual invisibility. Which was nonsense. At least, he thought it was nonsense. He felt his fingers moving and glanced down at his hand, watching the shadowy red counter walk across foggy knuckles. Drat the thing, he thought irritably. The counter hesitated in its journey as if it had heard the thought. That was interesting. He focused his attention on the counter. Go away, he thought at it, as sternly as he was able. Between one knuckle and the next, it vanished. Sean blinked and reached into the usual pocket. No counter. He checked the other pocket. No counter. Well, good. He was delighted to be rid of the blasted thing. Only, where had it gone? He took a breath. A problem for later, if problem it was. He'd speak to Priscilla about it. In the meantime, he followed Paddy down a narrow, sparsely populated aisle to a booth sporting a red and blue checked awning. A rosy-cheeked man wearing a white apron over a bright red shirt stood behind a red counter supporting four large glass jars, each containing a brightly colored foodstuff. Patty pulled her Andiri Port trade card from her pocket and approached the counter. Vanner stopped just short of entering the shop, standing at ease, his eyes roving up and down the aisle, surveying the meager crowd. Sean stepped into the shop itself, though not so close as the counter. He wanted to be able to watch and to hear. Patty had seemed rather nervous earlier, though this was not by any means her first time as a buyer. Well, and sometimes the work itself steadied the nerves. Certainly, she seemed cool enough now, as she bowed to the gentleman and extended the card. Trader Yoskalen, welcome! The red-cheeked man bellowed, his smile showing an amazing number of very white teeth. I am Gustav Rel Anna, proprietor of the Laster Garden. How may I serve you? We have fresh and amenable to stasis candied trovule, salted ginger, and dehydrated spingenach. For your special customers, we have also a small amount of Laster chutney. Such a treasure does not often come to our port location, but last year saw a laster harvest as none before. And we are able to offer a few, a very few, cases of this andiri delicacy to discerning buyers. Merchant Rel Anna's voice was loud, as if he were shouting at her from across the aisle, rather than the width of the counter. Patty kept her face smooth and did not back away from the assault upon her ears. She did, however, answer in a soft and mannerly voice that would have astonished Cousin Corrine. The chutney, she said, diverted briefly from her agenda. Can it be put into stasis? The man's smile became less broad and his cheeks became redder. Patty wondered if she had been maladroit. The chutney, trader, no. You do not put Laster chutney into stasis. 
You tuck it tenderly into the best stateroom, as if it were your own child. She had been maladroit. She scolded herself. She should have known better. Hadn't her research told her how fragile the laster fruit was? Surely that would be the case for anything made from it. I am desolate to have no such tender accommodations available to the chutney, she said. I have only heard tales of this rare foodstuff, and for a moment I allowed my hope to interfere with my good sense. The smile widened again. She had redeemed herself. But if not the chutney, what brings you to me? I am in search of Mylaster, she said. Quite a bit of Mylaster. I am informed that you sell in bulk. I do, yes. However, trader, I must warn you that the kernels, uh, they will lose uh, taste, uh, texture, nutritional values after only a very short time in stasis. Uh, they remain edible, but they do not remain excellent. I understand, Paddy assured him. I plan to deliver within the toleration period. Hmm. That was said quite softly. The smile entirely vanished now as he studied her from brown eyes squinted into slits. How much bulk, Mylaster, will you buy, trader? Now they were approaching the correct course. Patty looked directly into those calculating brown eyes. That will depend upon how much you have to sell and at what price and condition, she answered. Gustav Rel Anna's eyebrows rose. Well then, he said, if you please, trader, step over to the side counter just there. I will call for assistance here and then we will talk. There was a tiny ripple in the air by her ear, as if a flutter bee had passed quite near. Priscilla looked up from her work screen, frowning slightly. Flutter bees were not expectable in the office of a captain hard at work inside of a starship in orbit. There, a glow of dusty red drew her eye on the desk between her coffee mug and the keyboard. She took a careful breath and extended her attention, remembering how this very same game counter had been waiting for her, for Moonhawk, when she had come to Weapons Hall, to gather those things that she would need as the captain of a warship around an embattled planet. Then the counter had been sparkling with Sean's presence, when he had been separated from the ship, his fate unknown. It had comforted her to know without doubt that he was alive. When matters were settled and they were rejoined, the counter had left her and returned to Sean. Stupid object, he'd told it. I'm not loot. Only he was loot in the same way that she was Moonhawk, old souls both. She had been taught at Temple that she was Moonhawk's vessel, and that her strength as a witch came from that special relationship with one of the oldest priestesses of their order. Lute had, according to history and myth, been Moonhawk's companion across many lifetimes. He was not himself a priest. There were no priests at the temples on Cynthia but he had often been acknowledged as a man of power, though some histories referred to him as a mere cunning man. While she would never suggest to Sean that his gift came from his special relationship with Lute, it was clear to her that there was an interest. She touched the red counter with the tip of one finger, read the tale of its recent adventures, and smiled. Sean had sent it away in a fit of pique, 
and it had come to her, apparently being unwilling yet to return to loot or to Weapons Hall. Priscilla focused on the battered item, imprinting I love you into its wooden sole, and then murmured, Return. She lifted her finger. There was a flash of red, brighter than the counter itself, followed by that small disturbance in the quiet air of her office. The tiny, uncluttered triangle of desk space between her coffee mug and the keyboard was empty. Still smiling, Priscilla returned to work. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a free concert in the park from Old Man Willow and his rockin' sapling band, who are carnivorous, but usually stick to Chick-fil-A and a good berry's meat concrete, for P.C. Hodgell, author of The Gates of Tagmar. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>